Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Breathe Easy podcast, today featuring the Women in Clinical Problems Working Group. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. My name is Dr. Rupal Shaw, and I'm an associate professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care, Allergy, and Sleep Medicine at UCSF. And today, I'm lucky to be sitting down with our guest, Dr. Joyce Lee. Dr. Lee is an associate professor at the University of Colorado, the program director for their interstitial lung disease program, and the future program chair of the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm especially happy that you are here because, I don't know if you remember this, but we first met when you interviewed me for a job here at UCSF. And I remember leaving the interview feeling super excited to have a potential friend um, in the division. And then as I showed up to work, I heard that you had taken a job elsewhere. And so we were unfortunately like two ships passing in the night in San Francisco. So I'm thrilled that I get this opportunity to talk with you today. And I wanted to start the podcast with you kind of sharing your experiences in moving institutions um, as a junior faculty member, what the challenges you faced were and what kind of opportunities you saw during that transition. Yeah, well, thanks Rupal for inviting me to, to be part of this podcast. It's, it's really an honor. And um, I remember our interview as well, and I felt horrible <laughs> that I was leaving just as you were arriving because I did, um, I was looking forward to, um, you know, working with you at UCSF. So um, it was a missed opportunity and hopefully sometime down the line we'll have future opportunities to work together. Um, but I, as you mentioned, I um, left UCSF, um, I did fellowship there and um, did my early faculty years there. And about five years after my official fellowship, we decided to move to Colorado. And um, it was uh, driven by my family. And so that's um, the reason why um, we looked, or my husband originally looked for a job there, and I grew up there, and my parents were still there, so there was a lot um, drawing me back to Colorado, and I think um, from a personal and a family standpoint, it was absolutely the right decision at the right time. You know, I think some of the challenges, of course, professionally was um, it's not the classic time to move um, after fellowship, especially um, in those of us in academics and trying to build a research career. So um, if I ignored my personal and family obligations, um, I would not have chosen to move at that time. Uh, but, um, but, you know, uh, that's what I prioritized and that's what we went with. And, um, and it's all worked out great. I mean, I think one of the things that um, my mentors have told me in the past and I continue to remember and remind myself is that everything always works out uh, one way or the other. And, and same with this transition uh, from a professional standpoint um, has also worked out. There are unique challenges to moving, I think. Um, and, and one of the main ones is you don't know the people, um, you don't know the culture and you don't know the politics of the place that you're moving to. And you can also probably speak to this as well, just in terms of your um, transition to UCSF. And so I think um, for me, that was the hardest part is getting to know the people and find my community and 
figure out how to do things at a completely new institution. But, you know, it all worked out at the end of the day. <laughs> I can totally relate because, yes, I had a similar move. And one of the things I did before I moved was try to identify a mentor um, before moving, just because sometimes it feels like in a new institution, you want someone to be looking out for you. Um, how did you sort of identify mentors at Colorado when you had previously, you know, spent a long time at UCSF? How, it, how did that work for you? Yeah, I, um, so I think that there isn't a single mentor that I um, sought out. I think there were multiple people that I looked to to kind of help me. So um, a research mentor, a clinical mentor, and maybe a life coach type of person to help me just um, stay sane during the transition. And so I reached out to a lot of people I knew through, you know, just um, having um, met at conferences or connected through via mentors and things like that. And, and so that was a great first step, um, but it does mean, you know, putting yourself out there and kind of feeling like, um, you know, you're asking for a lot of favors, but I think you just have to get past that a little bit and just um, ask for help and, and, and talk to people to get um, their perspective on things. So yeah, I reached out to a lot of people, um, probably not as proactively as you had. I arrived here and then was like, oh my gosh, who am I going <laughs> to talk to and figure these things out? But, um, but that, yeah, I completely agree. Finding that local mentorship is, is really critical. And I love the point that you made about having multiple people doing multiple roles that like there isn't one mentor that can provide advice on your research career and how to work and have kids and, you know, how to be a great clinician. And this idea of having a network of people, I think, is so important. Um, and, I, you know, one thing I really feel lucky about is that I didn't move during a pandemic when everything was virtual. So I was able to kind of meet people naturally in faculty meetings or in clinic. Do you have any thoughts or tips on how to establish a mentoring network now that so much has gone virtual? Yeah, it's, um, I, I think it's really tough. Um, but I think there's also, um, you know, while we don't have the in-person interactions like we used to, and I think team building and morale and and those types of things are, are, are a struggle in the virtual format. I do think that, um, you know, people have become incredibly Zoom and otherwise savvy. And so um, I think it's um, more expected or, or at least people are um, not, um, or at least they're used to getting um, requests to meet via Zoom. And so I think that that has changed the way and also the ability to reach out to people. So local mentorship, um, you know, you can meet with them via Zoom, but then you can also, you know, reach out to somebody who you want to work with in Paris or in London or, or otherwise. And people know the drill. They're very familiar with the format. And I think um, it's not as unusual as it once was. And so I think in some respects, there's some doors that have opened um, as a result of everyone becoming um, Zoom obsessed. But um, I do think that there is a value obviously to those in-person connections. And I think, you know, once you go back to 
a more um, somewhat normal work life, making those connections again, going out to dinner, you know, learning about, I think that the things that's hardest is learning about who people are outside of work, right? Those conversations don't happen uh, as frequently. One of the things you said really struck me when you were talking about finding mentors, which was that you felt like you were asking um, a lot of other people. And I think that's a natural reaction for people in general and women in particular, that sometimes it feels, you feel nervous to ask for things and not just mentorship, but in particular sponsorship, like asking for nominations or asking to be on a committee or to give a talk. How did you get over that um, initial feeling of, um, oh gosh, I don't want to take people's time or I don't want to bother someone? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I still get um, nervous and I still feel like sometimes I might be intruding on people's times. But um, but I think, you know, um, most people, I won't say 100% of people, but most people are going to be very open and want to help. Everybody likes to talk and give advice about things and um, they may or may not be correct or have the right type of advice for you. But I think in general, people... Um, want to um, share their time and their experiences to help the future generations um, navigate things hopefully a little bit easier than the way they um, they made their path. And I think, you know, the worst thing they can say is no. And, um, but if they do agree, I think, you know, people should be prepared for those meetings. So know exactly what it is you want to get out of that interaction. If it's about career development advice, giving them the tools or the things necessary for them to give you really good advice, I think is important. So I think being prepared um, also takes away some of the um, nervousness, I guess, with, with asking for advice or for help. I think that's such a great point about making sure the person you're meeting with has all the right information. I recently got a meeting request and I had no idea why we were having the meeting. And the meeting was about something really important that I needed to prepare. And when I got to the meeting, I was totally caught off guard. And I think that just that small piece of setting the agenda and sending things in advance can make the meeting so much more productive and have the person really appreciate the time that they spent with you. You're full of career pearls today. And I love (laughs) Only sometimes. One of the things that I really admire about you, Joyce, is that you seem to be able to do everything so well. Um, And one of the things that you do so well is that you're really involved in national societies such as ATS and but also the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, um, which, you know, is pretty much all volunteer um, on top of all the other things you do. Um, how did you get involved with those societies and um, how would you, what would you advise people who are looking to get involved? Um, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, um, I, I think um, you're very kind. Um, there are some days that I'm a better and worse mother and some days that I'm a better and worse um, clinician and researcher and all the things. But um, I think what's really, for me, what's been really important is to figure out like what 
what makes you happy? Why, why do you go to work every day? And, and what is it about the things that you're doing that make you wanna come back? Because I think individually, a lot of those things can be very frustrating and very hard um, and um, you know, lead to burnout and, and you know, just not feeling um, very happy with, with where things are going. So for me, it has been a very deliberate effort to, to do the things that I like or to have things in my life that allow me to do the things that I like. And so I think that um, that's been something that I've tried to think about every time I've been given a new opportunity. As it relates to these foundations, that's, um, I think I more sought out those um, opportunities because um, I enjoy it. I think um, both the ATS and the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation are very different, um, but since this is an ATS podcast, I'll speak more towards the ATS side of things. I think, um, you know, very early on with my mentorship, I, you know, was very much encouraged to submit abstracts, symposia ideas, seminar ideas, and things like that. And, and um, as a fellow, you don't think that your symposia or seminars are going to get a lot of street cred and get programmed into um, the meeting, but but they do. I think you know working with your mentors and um, uh, establishing you know understanding you know certain areas and what the gaps are and what people might be interested in hearing about. That was a lot of fun to create different um, proposals for the ATS, and I think through that process, you know, getting um, involved in abstract review and things like that, I think. I've just enjoyed the ability to um, see things outside of your own little bubble, right? Because it's easy to just get so absorbed with everything that's happening locally and not appreciate um, the bigger picture and potentially the impact is larger um, in on a broader scale. The other thing I really like about it is the people you get to meet and interact with. I think that's one of the most wonderful things I've, I've enjoyed about participating in ATS because, you know, being an ILD, it's very um, small community and you see the same people um, at the meetings. But I think being involved in ATS, you get to meet people who are not in the ILD community, who have amazing ideas um, and are really good people. So that's another reason why I've made an effort to do those types of things and, and figure out the time piece associated with that. I, I really liked your comment about what, thinking about what makes you happy and then doing those. I read this book, which is a little bit cheesy, but was called The Happiness Equation. And it talked about writing on an index card, like next to your bed, the two things that really make you happy. And then just trying to align all of your activities around those things. And every time you get an opportunity, go back and say, well, does that fall into those things that you say, um, make you happy. And if it does, it's like an easy way to be like, oh no, like this has nothing to do with me being a really good mom or a really good ILD doctor or, you know, whatever the things are that make you happy. And, right. um, clearly you didn't need that book, but if, if anyone, is listening, it really did help kind of distill it down in terms of just thinking hard about what's important and what will make you happy. Yeah. I mean, I think that that came from, um, mentors and, and people who have, been there and, and made those, um, figured it out. And, and I think, um, you know, it's another thing that they've um, recommended. We, 
I think depending on your situation, um, the tendency is to say yes to any opportunity that comes um, knocking at your door. And um, while some of them are really good for career development or for your research or for the things that are make you happy, there are definitely a lot of them that don't contribute to those types of things. So it's another strategy to try and um, prioritize um, the, the different asks in your life. And I love that you just normalize this idea that we don't have to say yes to everything, even when we're junior um, and that, you know, you can say no to things and you still will have a career and opportunities will still come to you and, and your career is long. So I think that's, that's really important. I will say, Joyce, though, from the outside, it seems intimidating when people are really involved in societies or they're up on the podium, like hosting these big symposiums or um, in the assembly board. When you are starting off in ATS, it just seems like that's a position that seems like such a stretch, you know, that how would you go from being just like a junior member to hosting these big symposia? And um, can you describe a little bit more concretely kind of like how, what were the steps you took in becoming more active, for example, in our clinical problems assembly um, or, or navigating to getting your symposium program? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that really had to do with my mentorship and um, uh, having, you know, that be part of the career development component to um, to what I was doing. And I think, you know, developing symposia or coming up with ideas, I think, um, you know, working with other people who are experts in the field, it'll allow you to network and, um, and meet new people. And, and I think um, you do want to leverage your mentor to, to make those connections. And, um, you know, if you prepare enough in advance, people can give you feedback and really develop out a symposia or a seminar series that will um, uh, improve the chances of it getting scored well. And, and so I think that from that standpoint, there's probably more people around to help think through some of those things than not. Um, and, you know, if you're not at a place that has people who are very much involved in ATS, I think reaching out to people um, you know, the program chairs or things like that, they can give you advice in terms of how to structure um, submissions uh, to increase the chances that it gets um, uh, programmed. And I think the other thing is, you know, um, I guess we all deal with this um, on a very, um, on a constant level is rejection, you know, nothing, not everything that we submit is uh, programmed. And there are some things that really, um, resonate well and others that kind of um, fall flat on their face. And so I think it's just not not giving up when um, you do get those rejections. I think they just come um, more than we'd like in this type of career, but um, patience and persistence, I think are really good qualities related to that. And then the one thing about getting involved is to go to your assembly meetings. I know this year we're not um, in person, but as soon as these, um, uh, meetings become in-person again. I think going to the assembly meetings, hearing about what's going on, um, they always are looking for people to help. <laughs> so there is no shortage of things that um, ATS and their assemblies need help on. And I think now more than ever, there's a strong focus on um, helping early career and junior faculty get 
integrated into the ATS. And so these apprentice type programs or um, uh, mentee um, mentor meetings through um, the early career working group. Um, I think there's a lot more opportunities now to, to see what's going on at ATS than there were previously. So I think it is a little bit easier um, for people to get involved. Hopefully we've taken away some of the intimidation factor. I know I was super intimidated when I first went to an assembly meeting, but then now I realize like we're all just looking for new people to help because this is all service. And so, yes, please come and smile at us and you will have a job within <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> There's no shortage of work. Yeah, I agree. I think the first assembly meeting I went to, I was like, what am I supposed yeah. to do here? I It wasn't entirely clear, but... Um, but now, now, you know, everyone has the inside scoop. <laughs> That's right. We pulled back the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit and focus more on the challenges over the past year with COVID and, and, um, how you maintained your sanity and success in the face of COVID. Um, and so I first thought I'd just mentioned to our listeners that you are a mom and um, a partner in addition to being a really successful physician. And um, especially for those of us who have kids in school, this year has been full of a lot of changes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you navigated the changes and sort of changing demands on your time and roles and responsibilities and sort of what life looked like um, became totally different, I think, really quickly? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it uh, pretty much sucked. And um, both of my children are alive without any, you know, major wounds, psychological or physical, I think. Though my son that you know of. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, you know, it was tough. It was a learning curve for our whole family. Um, and I think the hardest part was that, um, that I was the primary caretaker for my kids. And, you know, part of the reason we moved here was, oh, we can have grandparents help and we have um, aunts and uncles and, you know, like things like that. Our village expanded by moving to Colorado. But then with COVID, it just, the village went away because, um, you know, we didn't want to expose grandparents or, or mix bubbles, so to speak. And, um, and my husband um, is a surgeon. And so he was, uh, with the exception of maybe four weeks in March, he was back to working full-time um, after um, some time at home. And so really that time of um, watching the kids all day long and um, doing work and um, seeing patients and doing everything. And we also have a dog too. I mean, it was just, it was complete chaos. And I think, um, you know, some days were better than others. I think the things that helped us get through it a little bit was to develop a routine. Um, you know, I think my kids had to learn what I do in terms of work and I had to kind of get used to like being um, with my children 24 seven, right? Cause usually they go to school and I pick them up and they're happy and, and it's different. But um, so we had to get used to each other and being in the same space and using the same bandwidth and you know, all of the things. And I think um, there were definitely hiccups along the way but my kids are, were fantastic and um, 
learned very quickly, like there's certain times they can run in and get, get me and, and I'll drop what I'm doing and, and come help them. And then other times where, you know, unless somebody is hurt, <laughs> they don't um, come into a clinic visit while I'm uh, talking to a patient. And so we, we learned those things. And I think initially I was very, I put too much pressure on myself to be not only the parent, but the teacher and the entertainer in addition to all my usual stuff. And I think once I let go of some of <laughs> that, um, uh, let go of some of that, it, it became much better. We had to figure out, you know, I think this is again here where you prioritize, like what's most important right now, the most important thing is getting my kids through this craziness. It's hard psychologically and, um, you know, to have kids, you know, a first grader learn through Zoom is like, what do they actually learn? I'm not <laughs> entirely sure. So, you know, I think um, I, I let go a lot of, um, of the research and um, the non-patient oriented things for the um, probably the first quarter to the first half of the pandemic. And, um, and I knew I was making that conscious decision, but um, you know, I, I think that's just where my priorities were. And, and we got through the summer and um, thankfully for us, um, the kids got to go back um, to school in the fall in person. Uh, but there was lots of, it wasn't like normal school, of course. And so any runny nose, the kids stayed home and, you know, COVID testing and who's going to watch the kids, uh, it, you know, it became a logistical um, nightmare. <laughs> but we're, like I said, we've made it through. Um, I've been able to resume the research um, for the most part. You know, they're, it's still weird working from home. Um several days out of the week, but just having to adapt and be a little bit flexible and, and ultimately kind to myself, right? Like not to beat myself up over, um, over days that I may not have been as productive as I desired. <laughs> I can totally relate to all of that and just feeling like the children are alive and <laughs> they ate something today. <laughs> That is a win. Yeah. But I also feel like I was in some ways more protected from the effects of the pandemic because I am more clinical. And so I don't depend on grants or papers for my career. And I do see, you know, a lot of my colleagues who are primarily research, it was a, it's been a big challenge that like to not be able to have that emphasis on getting the productivity out. That's sort of your currency in academia. And um, I like that you said you kind of made that conscious choice to let that go a little bit. But knowing that not everybody will have that security or that option, what are other ways that you felt like you were able to kind of stay afloat from a research perspective over the past year? Um, I think it it's hard because clinical research, most of the, um, at least our, at our institution for months, we could not um, do any clinical research in terms of patient subject recruitment or, um, or anything um, to move forward our studies. And so the things that I focused on were, um, you know, finishing projects that have been 
floundering for <laughs> months. And so trying to finalize some projects that didn't require, um, uh, you know, patient recruitment and activity. I think the other thing is, um, you know, that is important is to, to tell your leaders, to tell your mentors what you're going through. I think, um, Sometimes I've heard from other people, you know, some fear in um, uh, discomfort in sharing um, personal struggles along the way, COVID or not COVID related. But I think um, for me, it was important to um, to to tell people like I can't do this right now because of X, Y, or Z, and and. Um, and for the most part, I would say that they've been understanding. And I think that they understand that there are unique um, challenges for those of us that have children or other caretaking responsibilities. Um, and, and we don't have you know, full-time nannies or other partners that can contribute to, to those types of things. But for me, unless they know, they'll, they, unless you tell them, they'll never know. And, um, and then you're just suffering in silence and they're expecting you to do something and you can't get it done. So to me, it was, you know, um, getting people on the same page that I was on. And I think, um, you know, most people were, were quite understanding of that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think junior folks, it's particularly challenging. They don't have the same type of cushion or the ability to push deadlines and the deadlines don't seem to be changing and we're not getting any younger. And so I think that, um, that that's difficult and pushing back K awards or rethinking those types of things. I think you just have to do, you have to do what's right for you. I think if we, um, you know, perseverating on a deadline that's passed and not or upcoming and you just can't get it done, you know, move it to the next one and, um, and give yourself some space to, to accomplish that. And I think um, getting people to, to understand um, your situation will help them bridge you through the difficulties um, down the line, I hope. I, I think that's so important to be transparent with your community and not feel ashamed or less than if you have other obligations. I've really tried to normalize my seven-year-old as an active participant in many meetings because I think if we don't normalize that this is life, that the kids are going to be on the Zoom and this is like we're all trying to do many things for the people who are in more vulnerable positions, they don't feel like they can have that conversation and now, Joyce, that you kind of probably transitioned to being more of a mentor, right? And this, as you've moved on, how have you advised your mentees to deal with the pandemic and what strategies have you used as a mentor-mentee team? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, mentoring now through the pandemic or even, you know, if you think about your research teams and your research staff, the... Um, the office connection is missing, right? And so you don't check in as frequently, you don't knock on the door and see how things are going. Um, you can't see when people are overwhelmed or stressed or um, tired. Like those are things that I think we, um, those cues are not present. So for me, it's, you know, just making sure that there is frequent 
contact. And so I meet with my mentees um, on a regular basis. And, um, and we don't just talk about the research. I make them tell me how things are going otherwise and the balance and what's going on at home to make sure that, um, you know, I know that what they're going through and that I um, can manage my expectations of things that we're working on together because I, I'm aware of what's going on. So it's the same type of transparency, I think, in that relationship and probably even more so. And, you know, I, I think um, if you need help, then, I mean, that's what we're here for, right, is either to help push projects through, um, you know, with writing or with analysis or things like that. But unless we know that that those are things that you're struggling with, um, it's hard for us to help. So I think that for me, I've been very um, prescriptive about checking in um, and um, making sure that, um, you know, we're all on the same page in terms of what, what we can do right now, what the expectation is for the project. And if we need to move it because, you know, you're pulled into the unit um, for another week, then, you know, we work with that. And um, I don't know, um, I mean, not being the mentee to know if that style <laughs> is effective or not, but I think um, for me, it, it helps me to know what they're going through so that I can help manage the situation as best as I can. I think highlighting your flexibility and sort of this idea that you have their back, you know, like if they can't meet deadlines, you will work it out like that permission that's being given to your mentees, I feel like is such a gift that not everyone has. So I think that's great advice for people who are mentors as well as mentees. Um, moving on to other lessons learned from the pandemic. I think we all innovated like crazy this past year. I mean, I think medicine just really, uh, we changed care delivery in many ways. Um, is there something through this pandemic or even in your career um, at large where you faced a challenge or a rapidly changing situation and been able to innovate in the face of it a time that you felt, you know, you were proud of, that you, of, of sort of the innovation and creativity you had? Um, I, mean, I don't, I'm not sure I would call it innovative, but I do think that um, our team was able to be quite nimble um, when everything went virtual. And, and I was so appreciative to, um, you know, our physicians, to our administrative support and our nursing support um, to help really make a transition where we didn't have a ton of downtime for our patients um, and, and flipped, you know, like a, a light switch to virtual visits. And, um, and I'm super proud of our team that, you know, despite the pandemic, our volume continued to increase um, uh, through, you know, once we kind of got through the dip of March. Um, ever since then, we've had steady increase in our, our patient volume. And, and I, I attribute that really to the, um, the teamwork that our team put into to getting that done and um, and all working virtually we weren't seeing each other in the office to figure out like let's come up with a game plan and figure this out we did this all remotely and um, and that I think it was was pretty impressive and, and not ones that other programs experienced and um, so I'm just truly grateful that you know the team um, that I get to work with day in and day out are 
are, um, are great people and invested in the success of the program. And I think, you know, trying to foster the team morale during, you know, times where we can't get together or celebrate successes, um, which I think is critical or, you know, to, um, you know, just connect on a personal level, I think was, um, is something that we've been very proactive about. And so not necessarily innovative, but, um, but I think um, we've been very intentional about keeping the team strong and um, despite the, the current circumstances and, and that, that makes me really um, happy. I think it's a credit to academic institutions in particular that move slowly that we were all able to sort of embrace new technology. Yeah. Um, one of the things you said was that you were really intentional about keeping the team morale up. Can you give us some examples of things you did? It's something that I've been challenged with in a virtual world, trying to be respectful of people's time and their interest in being on Zoom, but also trying to continue this team environment. Yeah, I think um, we have, um, I mean, it was not totally thought out. I mean, I think that um, we have meetings where I make sure that, and we actually onboarded new staff during the pandemic, which um, is is not easy and I would not recommend it. But um, even with that, I think that we, you know, we had time for work, but then we were also pretty um, intentional about having virtual happy hours. Um, I know that got kind of old um, and, um, during parts of the pandemic, but we just had it once a month where um, we invited anybody who wanted to join. And, um, you know, it, there was a lot to talk about that wasn't work related um, and we just got to connect. And so I think that that um, was one of the things that despite Zoom fatigue that people looked forward to in terms of connecting. And then we also, you know, I spent a lot of time in this, it's time consuming, but I think it was worth it at the end of having one-on-one check-ins pretty regularly with the staff and, um, you know, making sure that the staff knew each other and were connected or faculty or otherwise and, and make, helping people make those connections and um, figure out who resources were. But, you know, the only way you know that is if you, if you talk to them and take the time. So to me, it was time well spent, um, but it is, um, but it's hard and I don't know if there are other um, ideas that you have that helped kind of uh, bring the team together. We're all hoping to have a big party in the summer. I don't know if that's a little early, that's probably ambitious, but, um, but you know, I think, um, yeah, I, other than that, I don't know if I have any really great ideas. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's right. It's sort of individual, making sure individuals needs are met and making connections. Uh, Similarly, we keep waiting for a time when we can have an in-person gathering that will not make SF Chronicle headlines. (laughs) (laughs) UCSF doctors are partying, but you know, there, you can't really replace that in-person feeling, but we have tried to do more huddles and more just being together more while on Zoom, but at least just keep the cameras on and see each other and check in, I think has kind of helped us feel like a group, even when we're all sort of all over the place at our houses and various locations. So yeah. um, 
taking a tip from you, Joyce, um, you said that in your conversations, you always try to get to know more about people and who they are as people outside of their academic and professional roles. Can you tell us a little bit more about you? What do you enjoy outside of work? What has kept you as a person sane over this past year? Anything you want to share? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, um, I mean, in normal times, I'm a total foodie and I like going out to eat and checking out new restaurants. Clearly that has not happened in, um, in the past year, but I did start cooking more. And so one of the things that, um, you know, with my kids over the summertime is like, I'll try a new dish every week. I'll make something new, we'll pick it together and <laughs> we'll decide yay or nay um, on these dishes. And so that's something that I think, um, so instead of going out to really nice restaurants, I'm muddling through the kitchen trying to um, make, uh, make food. And so that was an experience. And then, um, and then, you know, I, I think being outdoors with my family has been really great. So, um, you know, one of the silver linings is that, you know, I've gotten to hang out with my kids. I'm traveling, not at all. And so um, we do a lot of things together. And um, I think my kids, I have an um, older son and a younger daughter, three years apart. And I think they maybe fight a little bit less. I think they have garnered some mutual interests. So I'm not referee, you know, 100% of the time, maybe just 50% of the time. Um, and so I think they've developed a bond over this, this time period, which has been really fun to see. They're at an age where we can play games together and things like that. So I enjoy that a lot. And, um, and we're all kind of, um, we've, um, started listening to books on tape together as a family. I, it sounds kind of weird, but um, but they're now at an age where their book interests are kind of similar. And so it's been fun to um, to really, you know, engage with my kids and, and hang out with them. And um, hopefully there's no separation anxiety that occurs <laughs> after all of this. I'm sure there will be some. Um, and my dog in particular, all of his walks and um, off, he's my new office mate. And uh, I'm sure there will be some transition once, once life returns. But hopefully some of these things we can retain, you know, like I keep telling myself like the good parts of us like playing more board games or, you know, um, that stuff hopefully won't go away once we all open back up. We're still in high togetherness because school hasn't opened up back yet here in San Francisco. So yes, I'm looking forward to the day where I miss being with my children 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you, Joy, so much for spending this time with me talking about you and your career and all of the advice you gave is so relevant to our listeners. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks so much, Rupla. It was really great to chat with you and some shared experiences um, in this um, crazy world that we live in. And I think, um, you know, uh, for our young women who are trying to um, make their way in this world, don't hesitate to reach out to people that you want to talk to. And, um, and I think um, you'll probably get more advice than you need, but it's better to pick from advice than to not have enough, I think. And as I said, ending on great advice. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Breathe Easy. I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Swati Gulathi and Dr. Hala Rakadia from the Women in Clinical Problems Working Group 
who worked hard behind the scenes to make this podcast happen. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit breatheeasy.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.